Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. I am joined by Chris Yogurst, uh, the author of Hollywood Hates Hitler, Jew Baiting, Anti-Nazism, and the Senate Investigation into Warmongering and Motion Pictures. Uh, Chris is an assistant professor of communication at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in the Department of the Arts and Humanities. He has written for The Washington Post, Hollywood Reporter, uh, and most frequently at the Los Angeles Review of Books. Thank you for joining us today on the show, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Sonny. Uh, so I found this book as somebody uh, who uh, spends a lot of time thinking and writing about the business of Hollywood. I am fascinated by the kind of confluence of government and Hollywood uh, on a business level. And this is a this is kind of an interesting early interaction between the two. I mean, not the earliest, but 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 an early one. Um, so could you could you set the stage for us? What what is happening in the world in 1941? When this when this takes place, uh, and 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 what what exactly are the studios um, uh, doing both at home and overseas that has attracted the ire of the isolationists in the in the Senate? Sure, yeah, it, it's this is an interesting story because it's 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 in the sh- it, you know it happens in the towards the end of 1941, so it's in the shadow of World War II, which is one of the reasons probably why there hasn't been a full book about it. I mean, historians have noted noted it. I mean, it was a Senate investigation, um, but really, what was going on is the the studios were making anti-Nazi movies, and the isolationists in the Senate, or at least a few of them, were really really upset about that. The 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 this whole stage is set with the the isolationists and the interventionists that seem to be this you know you know we think of the left and right today in the 1930s there was a by the late 1930s there was a a really big following that was that was more defined by the isolationists and the interventionists should we get involved with the war in Europe or not and this is coming on the heels of uh, the, some of the studios struggling, some of them doing fairly well, but a lot of them were, were exhibiting films in Europe. So then there was this question of, do we keep films in Europe, you know, as we learn more and more about Hitler, do they, do, do they cut ties with Europe or not? Uh, Warner Brothers was the first to do that uh, in 1933, 1934. They, end, they, they cut all ties with Germany. Uh, it took the other studios a little bit longer to do that, um, but Warner Brothers was really ahead of the curve in terms of starting to make thinly veiled anti-Nazi movies and then really anti-fascist movies. We don't get the first anti-Nazi movie until Confessions of a Nazi Spy in '39, uh, and of course that was an, an easy one to justify because we had the the Leon Turow case and the the exposure of the Nazi spy ring out east. So. Uh, they were able to, I mean, there were, there were production code rules that said you can't ridicule other countries and things like mm-hmm. that, um, which prohibited studios from actually going after Germany when they wanted to. Um, so they were able to do that in 39, and, and the Warners could justify that because it was like, hey, we're adapting a news story. And that's something that came up in this investigation. Uh, but they, they, what's interesting is this is actually a small output of movies from the studios and i mean you know as you know the studio system i mean the output was massive they're cranking out movies Mm -hmm. one after the other so the anti-nazi stuff is really a small percentage but i think in your in your your book you say it's just five percent right five percent of the films released in 1940 dealt with uh, the european conflict at all 
Right, right, yeah. It was it was something that was was a, a minor piece of the the studio output, but it was a major focus of the studio moguls. So that's one thing that's also worth pointing out is that even though I feel like it's disproportionate to what the attention the moguls were giving to the war in Europe because they're they're immigrants, they have family over there. A lot of these people are very, very concerned. A lot of them are traveling over there. Harry Warner's going over there, meeting with people. Carl Lemley is going over there, founder of Universal, going over there and trying to bring people back and trying to convince you. Know, he spent the last years of his life trying to get people in Los Angeles to, to house um, people fleeing Europe. So the in addition to, I also make a couple mentions in the beginning of the book of the the anti-Nazi spy rings that were going on in Los Angeles at the time. So this was also, you know, by the mid thirties, uh, also on the mind of the studio bosses. You have the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. You have all this stuff going on in the background that's not necessarily showing up in the films, but it's 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 something that the powers that be in Hollywood were very active in thinking about mm-hmm. and fighting. So by the time that starts showing up in movies in the late thirties. Uh, it's really just a continuation of things they've been dealing with for a while already. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's it, it, the, the, the focus on the European market is an interesting one because there, there are two ways you could look at it. And, and, and I think the, the, uh, the, the Senator who was leading the charge uh, in this, in this subcommittee investigation, he says, well, you just want, to make sure that the British market stays open, right? You, you're you're just trying to defend your your market by having these anti-Nazi films, and we can. Um, but then the the obvious retort here is: look, if all we wanted to do was keep our markets open, we would make sure that the markets uh, that Germany controls now were were still open to us, and that is that is not the case. Right, right, and that w- that was the and, and there's been some justified criticism of that because the, uh, the and there and there's been some. I, I would argue wrongheaded arguments uh, in the past about the the studios keeping movies through Europe is is seeing seeing as supposedly being supportive of what was going on in Europe or maybe mm-hmm. supportive you know at worst supportive of what was going on in Germany. Um, but a lot of these studios, I mean, you're also talking about you're coming out of the depression. Do you want to risk of losing a big revenue stream? I mean, there there's so many variables to this that put the studios in a really difficult spot in the late 30s. And of course, um, by the time we get to the the late 30s, I mean, in the book, I talk about a major turning point uh, are two, really two things. You have um, uh, Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass uh, happens in, in Europe, and you have really the, the probably one of the more higher profile purges of Jewish families from their homes and taking of businesses and all this kind of stuff like that. It makes a lot of headlines. It's impossible to ignore. This isn't just hearsay that's coming from families and letters. It's in the news. And then you have um, President Roosevelt enacting the Lend-Lease Bill, where he is pretty much giving everything to Great Britain except for boots on the ground. So you were, were giving all kinds of military aid and money and and um, equipment and all this kind of stuff. And this is when the tensions really, really, I, I would argue that this is when they really start getting uh, aggressive between isolationists and interventionists. And this is when it's starting to look like we're one step closer to the war and an easy scapegoat is is Hollywood. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, you know, if they're getting a lot of attention, that's another argument that some of the senators make in the book. I think it was Senator Wheeler um, actually, it was Clark, rather that that 
really kind of just outed himself is, is simply just being really jealous of the attention that movies got. And he felt that, well, you're not elected officials. You shouldn't get this kind of reach. We should get this kind of reach because we are more important. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a lot of this fear too, fear of influence of, of movies. And this is something that historically has always been a part of when government tries to get into uh, popular culture. I mean, they try early thirties, there was the pain fund studies and they were, they were afraid that, that movies were going to erode the moral fabric because they were uh, teaching kids how to do crimes and to have sex and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. you know, the same thing happens with comic books in the fifties. And I mean, it goes on and on. So this sure. is just another version of that. And they're just, they're terrified of the influence. Yeah. I, I want to, I want to come back to the continuity here because there's a, sure. there, there definitely is a certain continuity of Hollywood and, and Congress kind of coming to a loggerheads over, over this sort of influence. Um, but one of the things that, that was, uh, that was kind of interesting in this book is, and, and we forget that this was, you know, this, this, this all takes place at a time before Hollywood and movies in particular have real first amendment protections that this is, this is, you know, at, at this point in time, uh, Hollywood enter, uh, pictures are considered entertainments and not true art, not true, you know? Um, and I, I, and it, and it's something that comes up over and over again in this book is this, this kind of distinction between entertainment, um, and propaganda, you know, some things are good because they're entertainments and some things are bad because they're propaganda. Could you could you break that down a little bit for us and and the kind of distinction that the uh, the senators were trying to make on the one hand and Hollywood was trying to make on the other? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you you brought up a good point with the the First Amendment stuff. And and actually, what's interesting, the first senator to testify here was was Gerald Nine. He was really the ringleader of all of this. And he actually makes the argument. He he makes a really good argument that he just kind of lets float and goes away. That was probably his strongest argument, which is that. He, he did his research or, or somebody on his team did research to find out that this was all figured out in 1915 with Birth of a Nation, right? And that movies, it was determined that movies did not have First Amendment protection. They weren't like newspapers. They weren't like radio. Um, actually, I don't even know if radio was included in that, but they were. I know they were compared to newspapers. Mm-hmm. And he could have hammered yes. that. And, okay, it, he could have hammered that and he didn't. Um, but instead, they kept going back and forth, like you said, between... Uh, um, entertainment and propaganda, and they really never did a good job of defining what propaganda was. They, it, it really what just came out was that there it was really kind of based on fear that their their feel that movies were propaganda in the terms that they were going to. And I had even said that these movies are going to make us these anti-Nazi movies are going to make the country punch drunk for war. So he thought that they were uh, in, instead of being entertaining, they were appealing to. Uh, emotions and uh, according to him, the wrong kind of emotions. So they, and even a lot of, I think it was Flynn who who testified. I mean, he even said like, oh, I've written a lot of propaganda. And one of the senators hammers him. was like, oh, so you just, you're only against propaganda you disagree with. So they never, it was really kind of an ill-conceived attack on Hollywood because they really don't have a solid ground. And that was one of the things I came up with or I was questioning when I was deciding whether or not to write this book because the senators, it's just, it's pretty silly what they're trying to do. But once I saw the coverage it had in the in the national press, it was all over the place. So this is something that before World War II, right before, literally months before we got into World War II, mm-hmm. anybody reading national papers would have known that this was going on. And um, this this is also tied into uh, a larger a larger 
I mean, it's it's it was tr- one thing was tricky to write was it's it's tied it's tied into this America First movement at the time, which is weird to say today because we have a whole nother version of that going on. Mm-hmm. But it was America mm-hmm. First movement, the America First Committee in the '30s um, and the, or the early for, '40s rather that was really an isolationist group. They were trying they were a big part of trying to keep us out of war, and then and they were tied to uh, pro Nazi front groups. And mm-hmm. that's something that uh, comes up a little bit in here, but that's something I try to set the stage with in the book where you have the German American Bund and then you have, uh, which which is really uh, made up of, of probably, uh, I don't even know if I want to say it the way I want to say it, but you, you have uh, these groups like the German American Bund, the Silver Shirts, the Friends of New Germany that are all made up of of varying views on international relations between the United States and Germany. And the America First Committee is kind of the, the umbrella over all of this. And a lot of their, their I guess, spokespeople and their leaders, John Flynn was one of their leaders who, who was a journalist who testified in this investigation, but also uh, Charles Lindbergh. And he, here's another person who's a major figure that was speaking in America First rallies, and he was making... Uh, anti-Semitic remarks, most famously, uh, literally months before the investigation, he makes the claim that the biggest threat, and it's, so you're, months before the investigation, this is 1941, we know what the Nazis are up to, we know what's going on, we know what's going on in Europe, and he argues that the biggest threat to the United States is the Jewish-controlled media. Mm. So you have somebody as as renowned and beloved as Charles Lindbergh uh, uh, making a claim like that, it's going to have a ripple effect. And I think that as soon as that happened, people like Gerald and I saw an in and they're like, okay, we can, you know, if Lindbergh is talking like this, we can make a move and try to go after Hollywood for some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, you mentioned that, that it's a very confused argument between propaganda and entertainment. And, and we, and there are also all of these subcurrents or really overcurrents of, uh, anti-Semitism throughout, you know, kind of repeatedly emphasizing where these, uh, studio moguls came from and, um, and, and all that. Uh, the, the question that I, I, I have still after reading the book is what, what did the senators think that they were going to be able to do? Right. So like there, there, there's some, there's some, uh, kind of consolidation near the end that, oh, well, maybe we can make an antitrust argument here. We can break up the studios. And eventually that does happen with the Paramount right. decrees a few, few, few years later, but unrelated to this. But like the, the, as I'm, as I'm reading this, I'm just like, well, do the, do, does the Senate think that they can officially censor these movies, shut them down for production? I mean, I like, it wasn't, it wasn't entirely clear to me what their strategy was. Uh, what the isolationist senator strategy was going in again from a business angle here, because they're they're you know, it's one thing to have a it's one thing to have these hearings and just kind of like slander people in Hollywood and turn the public against them. But it's another to actually, you know, try to have some sort of concrete proposal to 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 mm-hmm. combat what they want to combat. I, I what what is your take on this? Uh, you know, from 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 the expert, what what did you think they wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, this is and this is part again. This is part of the reason why I was going back and forth for a while on whether or not to write this because they don't really have. They never make a concrete argument, and they never really, like I said, this whole thing was really ill conceived. And I, I mean, you you kind of said it just a second ago, where I I, I almost wonder if the 
the goal here was to embarrass Hollywood is to get this kind of stuff in the national press because they didn't, I mean, it comes out that the, I mean, the senators hadn't even watched these movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they were reminded that they had watched the movies, um, they, you know, that one, one of the big bombshells that Harry Warner throws at Gerald Nye after he goes after confessions of a Nazi spy, he's like, Oh, I have a memo here from 1939 that you sent the studio after watching the movie that said how awesome this movie was. And, so they they are just completely clueless on the movies, and when when they talk when they start talking to some of the other moguls, when they start talking to Skank, they they don't know how the studio works, they don't know how vertical integration works, they don't know who owns what theaters, so who has what kind of control mm-hmm. of the market. Um, but yeah, they keep coming back to pretty quickly. They keep coming back to antitrust arguments, like you said, because they they have nothing to stand on with the propaganda mm-hmm. stuff, and. Uh, and they, they probably had some arguments with, with the antitrust stuff, but even still, they, they showed such glaring ignorance for how the business worked and really glaring ignorance of popular culture in general that um, that, that became one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is because the more I look at the history of either censorship or intended censorship or attacks on popular culture, so often, particularly the government players are completely clueless about the popular culture they're going after. And this is a, a, a big example of that. And that's why I kind of conclude the book with that that argument that this there's so often these these people that are going after popular culture are just like Gerald Nye. They have mm-hmm. no clue what's going on. They haven't done their research. And um, you know, if they did, they might make a more interesting and compelling argument, but they simply don't. Um, but I think the to, to kind of sum up, I think the the goal was really to I mean, if they could have, I mean, they, they keep coming back to like, oh, I don't, I don't mean censorship. I don't mean censorship uh, because that even by then had already become a dirty word, mm-hmm. but they, they were clearly out for something and they were clearly irked by Hollywood and the people that they had brought in besides the senators. I mean, the journalists that they had brought in, um, John Flynn and Jimmy Fiddler, um, radio personality, and some of these other people were all people who really didn't like Hollywood. So they were, I think they were just trying to paint in the national press a different picture of Hollywood. And I think they felt powerless to the reach of movies. And they were trying to counter that somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this great moment uh, in, in your book where you pull, uh, you pull some testimony between... Uh, uh, Senator McFarland and Senator Nye and McFarland is, is talking McFarland who was on the side of Hollywood more or less, but and Nye was the isolationist. So McFarland says to Nye, you know, well, let's, let's, let's talk about some of these movies. Uh, you, you have, uh, I see escape here. We just discussed <laughs> that flight command. Nye says, no, I don't, I don't believe I have seen that Senator. Uh, Hamilton says that, th- or McFarland says that Hamilton woman, I did not see that manhunt. I think not Sergeant York. I think not. You mean you have not seen it? I did not. I mean, it's it's like it's this it's it's this almost uh, Kafka esque thing where these people are denouncing um, these these movies that they they simply haven't seen. And I, as I said, there there is there is some continuity here. I feel like you know history history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? It, it's not a, sure. this is this is a this is a thing that we see even today. Yeah, and and I'm glad you brought up McFarland because he. He's an interesting figure here because he he was a junior senator brought into this group. They thought that he was he was just going to kind of follow the leaders, and instead, I mean, they they overlooked his background as a really powerful attorney back in Arizona, and 
he asked all the right questions that they didn't want him to ask. And, and almost on the first day, this entire thing is undone by a question to Gerald Nye from one of his fellow panelists. And, and, um, and he comes across it honestly too. I mean, he's, he, he simply says that he's, you know, he's not a movie person. He doesn't go to the movies a lot and he's just trying to learn. He wants to learn about movies so he can help make a decision uh, as part of this, a uh, part of this Senate committee subcommittee. And just by asking these honest questions, even, even the people that are, you know, at the ground or at the, you know, really at the, at the forefront of making the, this argument and pushing this thing forward, don't even have answers for him. And, uh, what's interesting is that this this investigation makes uh, McFarland, Ernest McFarland, uh, like a national star. I mean, he becomes really, really important. And what's interesting, when I was writing this book, there's a new biography uh, of McFarland, and this isn't even mentioned, uh, which I found really interesting because he was all over the national headlines. And 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 that's one of the things. It's not even just the Hollywood press that covered this. It was the national press. The stuff was syndicated all over the place. Um, and uh, and and really, the these movies. I mean, even I'm just looking through the book here. You you pulled that quote from from that conversation. But the next day, when John Flynn is testifying, he gives a list of movies. He gives a long. He mentions movies from Warner Brothers, RKO, MGM, Columbia, 20th Century Fox, Paramount, as well as a list of British films. But then they really then they kind of just let that drop and they don't really get into any of this stuff. And that's one of the things that had come up with people I've talked about with this book. They're like, well, you know, we kind of wanted to know a little bit more about the movies. It's like, well, what's interesting is the more I got into this, the more I realized it really wasn't about the movies. They didn't, they didn't have anything to dive into with the movies either because mm -hmm. they hadn't seen them or because the propaganda wasn't there. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it really is fascinating. I like, I, 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 again, I feel, I feel like we, we keep having these, these same, um, arguments over and over. Uh, when, when, you know, we, you, you mentioned that at this point in time, censorship is already kind of a bad word that they, the senators keep saying, you know, we don't, we don't want to, uh, to censor. Um, and, and I do think you, you look a little askance at the Hayes code and, and kind of what the, um, the the studio heads had already agreed to in terms of self censorship, and I, I'm just I like I'm curious. I it isn't it, I I I go back and forth on you know the MPAA and the ratings board and all that. It, there are pluses and minuses, right. but I, I I do I this this does strike me as one of these instances where a little bit of self censorship and a little bit of self regulation helps head off a lot of government interference. De definitely, definitely, and and that was one of the defenses that came up for the the anti-Nazi movies is that they were because like yeah like we said before there there were rules in place in the Hays Code that you couldn't attack other nations, other religions, all this kind of stuff like that, and as soon as as soon as what was happening in Europe started making headlines, they were able to just we're we're just depicting the world as it is. We're not we're not. You know, this isn't ad hominem, right? This isn't, we're not just making up stuff. This is what's going on in the world. And, and that's why Warner Brothers was really at the forefront of this because they were, they were the studio always ripping from the headlines and always making these topical films. And that's why they really opened the floodgates with Confessions of a Nazi Spy. And then we have uh, MGM with The Mortal Storm and all these other movies start coming out. And they're all based on uh, either news stories or on books that had been written. And uh, 
the Mortal Storm I mentioned uh, that was a book by Phyllis Bottom, and, and that was that was one of the the argue the counter arguments as well is that if you're if you're mad at the the studios, why don't you go after the the publishers that are making these books or the magazines that are serializing these stories? I mean, all they're doing is is really reporting on the world. Um, so the censorship angle doesn't really hold water very long in this because of that. But I'm with you. I mean, I, I always kind of go you know, looking at history of of censorship. I always kind of go back and forth on on pros and cons because it's. I mean. The, the era of the golden age of Hollywood, as we call it, I mean, it was full of self-censorship, but they made amazing stuff. So mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, if you're creative enough, you can get around. I mean, some of the most powerful anti-fascist movies, I mean, I I would argue one of the best is before Confession of a Nazi Spy. And it was called They Won't Forget uh, about the loosely adapting the Leo Frank case from the 19-teens. And in that, they don't say anything about fascism, anything about Nazis, anything like that. But it's, it is all there. Everything you need is there. Um, so they were still able to do some pretty powerful movies, even without having to go after Germany. Um, but of course, once they do, um, it, it, it changes things. And, and that's why we have the conversation we have here. Right. Right. I, yeah, I mean, it, it, it it's, it's a tricky question and I, yeah, I don't know if I answered all of that. I know that. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 it is. It, it just, it's something, it's some, it, it is, this is more of a philosophical question sure, really sure. than anything else. Right. It's like, I, you know, I, I, I don't like the idea of self-censorship being there in the place of the like looming threat of government censorship, but at the same time, you know, uh, um, there, there is, there's something to be said for it. Uh, the, you know, as we said there, this is, this is just one of a series of kind of, uh, Hollywood and, and congressional class clashes. You, you have a, a much, a, a much, m- m- uh, bigger one, uh, better remembered one with HUAC a few few years later, um, the House on American Activities Committee, the Hollywood Ten, all that that you know has been kind of uh, immortalized uh, in in various books and and movie shows. But I mean, I like beyond that, you you get to like write Tipper Gore going after uh, you know rappers and yep. and heavy metal musicians, and you get you you have all sorts of um uh kind of little little clashes uh, uh up through through the years and again it does it, it, you you see these things kind of recur right with people who haven't seen what they're they're talking about people who are um angry about something and i mean we're we 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 seem to be kind of headed toward another period of that right now you've got on the one hand the cuties controversy with netflix and uh uh senators you know demanding that this this movie be removed and then also china uh and i i I think that the 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 chinese the, the the chinese influence on hollywood or hollywood's influence on china is kind of an interesting almost reversal of what's happening in in your book where you know you have china is playing an outsized economic role. The govern the the Hollywood studios are saying we're just entertainment. We're just trying to you know make make money you know, and and the the uh, Senate on the other hand, especially saying you know well look we've got concentration camps in Shenyang. Why 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 are you doing this? Um, I. I I, I don't know that <laughs> this is this is very this is a very bad question. I don't I don't know that I have one here uh, except except to say like if you if you were to um, look at look at look at history and look at what is happening right now. Do you see any parallels? It, 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 would you recommend 
the Senate stay out of it entirely, just let public pressure do its thing. I mean, I'm, I'm curious if you are somebody who wants to uh, help end human rights abuses in China, what role can you make Hollywood play in that? That's a really good question. I mean, I think, I think these are similar questions they were, the studios were thinking about at the time. I mean, wh- when, you know, one of the things that the Warner Brothers used, and particularly Harry Warner, just to describe the movies at his studio were education and entertainment. So that educational piece uh, was huge, and it had a big influence and a ripple effect, I think, throughout all of Hollywood. And they started to realize that we can use movies uh, for things beyond entertainment. And, of course, that's a slippery slope, right? And this is where we end mm-hmm. up with, with words like censorship and propaganda and all this kind of stuff. But I think... Uh, as long as as movies and and even t- talking today, movies, documentaries, TV shows. I mean, if they're if they're shedding light on on things around the world, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think uh, a big part. Of, I mean, I'm a, I'm a professor, so I think a big part of this is education. I think a big part of this is teaching people not to be afraid of popular culture, not to be afraid of things they disagree with. Um, and be willing to engage in conversation about these things. And I, I, I see movies or, or popular culture in general talking more broadly today as really like conversation starters and things like that. And uh, I think this is what is missed on the biggest criticisms of popular culture where you have somebody that uh, or a group or a politician or a group of politicians that that sees something that that represents something that they're afraid of or something that they disagree with or something they, you know, I think they over uh, estimate the sway of uh, particularly today of popular culture. I mean, like one show today doesn't mean what it did. You have one big show in the early 90s when, you know, when you didn't mm-hmm. know it, we have such a saturated market. So. And I think that's actually there's a parallel to Hollywood in the 40s because sure you had, um, you know, you didn't have as many mediums and outlets, and uh, but you had new movies every couple of days in the theater. I mean, there was there was you know it's almost like the same kind of turnaround of movies in the theater in the, in 1941 as you have shows on movies on Netflix today. I mean, it was constant, and. Mm-hmm. So these movies, most movies, particularly even the anti-Nazi movies, and they might have had an impact. They might have, but I mean, their staying power wasn't huge either. I mean, these movies didn't run for an entire year or things like that. I mean, they weren't like you know the you know weren't like the Wizard of Oz or some of these like big hits. I mean, they were they were interesting movies. They got headlines. They were provocative, and then people then moved on to the entertainment. So yeah. I think there was an yeah. overestimation. Um, of the influence of it. And I think what that then leads to is fear of it. And then this is where we get to um, Senate investigation kind of stuff or talks of censorship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I feel like it's almost inverted this time around where you have people who, and I include myself in this, people who are afraid that the Hollywood studios aren't doing it, aren't, aren't using their, their power to throw enough light on, on this, this problem, or frankly, are, are, afraid because of the economic influence of, of China to, to, you know, even, even employ somebody who has supported Chinese, uh, you know, for, for um, sure. Because in the, in the forties here, these studios, eventually they all were willing to forego profit. Right. And I think that's mm-hmm. what you're getting at here. It's like, today yes. they're not willing you know, that you're, they're making these movies for a global market at all costs and yeah. not, not willing to, to really, um, take a stand like they, like they did. Yeah. Right. And so I agree with you. I think there is a lot of inverted 
activity yeah, I mean, day. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you're you 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 have a line in here that uh, the profits were the only true ideology in Hollywood, and the war was clearly affecting foreign sales. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's true. That's that's true now, um, and it's it's distressing as somebody who uh, you know kind of. Uh, follows all of this stuff. I let, we're 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 running uh, up against the tie. Try to keep this short, okay? You know, for the for the people. Um, but the uh, is there anything that you want people to know uh, about your book about the the uh, Senate investigation that we're talking about here um, that we haven't covered? I, I always like to to ask the guests what 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 do you want people to know that we haven't discussed yet? Um. Well, I really. That's a tough question because I mean, there's it's really I mean, the reason I wrote this book was because I I keep you know, I'm, I'm increasingly interested in, like I said before, in censorship and attempts at censorship and just pushback against popular culture. And I feel like this is is something that, like, again, like I said before, got lost in the shadow of World War Two. And I feel like the more I went through the congressional record and the more I went through uh, the press coverage of this, the more I felt like this, so many, so many parallels to today. And uh, even if it's inverted, right, like we, like we talked about, even if there's some things that are a little bit different, I mean, there's so much in here that feels familiar. So I feel like the biggest thing to get from this is, is, is a reminder, or maybe just some context that, you know, a lot of what's going on now um, is not new. Um, like we were talking about earlier, I think an email yesterday, right? Like this, this, government meddling with popular culture and trying to work its way in and, and, and vice versa is also nothing new. These are the kind of things that ebb and flow throughout history and, and they, they change all the time. And this is just another one of those episodes. And I feel like this is just, this just happens to be one of those episodes that has, has been largely forgotten. And I think it ties in, it ties together a lot of a lot of little pieces that we might not, a lot of people might not know about the 1930s and the era in between the depression and World War II and the tensions and the tension points that were going on, and I think a lot of that, more than anything in the book, I think is that the tension points in the late 1930s, early 40s are very very similar to today. Um, not quite maybe as bad as you mentioned the HUAC stuff in the 19 late 1940s. Once we get into the anti-communism. But, you know, there's lots of talk about fascism today. There's lots of talk about can it happen here? And we've got the the HBO show Plot Against America, which actually mentions a few things that I, I talk about in the book. But I think uh, one of the, the biggest thing to get out of this is really just a some historical context for how and why these things happen. And also maybe this was kind of cathartic for me. Um, to see that maybe we don't have to worry about this as much because it, it more times than not the critics of popular <laughs> culture show their true colors and uh, mm. really th- these you know their their criticisms criticisms end up uh, you know much ado about nothing. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining me uh, again. The the name of the book is Hollywood Hates Hitler: Jew Baiting, Anti-Semitism. I'm sorry, Jew Baiting, Anti-Nazism, and the Senate Investigation into Warmongering and Motion Pictures. Uh, the author is Chris Yogers. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, thank you. For and having me. if you if you uh, are interested in this topic, it's it's it is a it is a fascinating and underexplored uh, topic. You can of course pick up the book on Amazon. Uh, it is available for purchase right now. Um, Join us again next week for another uh, edition of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Mm-hmm.